Hey, you. I'm Kim. And I'm Tara. Welcome to Unapologetically You. Today's story is unlike any we've heard before. Sapphire is a living miracle. At 11 years old, she ends up alone in the middle of winter in the Yukon with her disabled older brother. These two kids survived conditions that many adults wouldn't even live through. Listen in to Sapphire's unimaginable story of survival. Don't forget to rate and subscribe on whatever platform you listen in on so that we can continue to inspire you. Welcome, Sapphire. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, you two. We are thrilled to have you. And honestly, we like just want to dive right into this, sister. So how did you find yourself surviving in the Yukon at 11 years old? Like what? Wait, before you even do that, though, can you tell us where the Yukon is? Okay, <laughs> no problem. Uh, the Yukon is right next to Alaska, um, okay. right above British Columbia, Canada, all that. So it's kind of tucked up there at the top. Great, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Yes. So how did you, I mean, what, tell us, tell us it all. Let's hear it. <laughs> okay. So, um, my background is a little strange. I kind of grew up in a doomsday prepping type family. So that might explain quite a bit of it right there. <laughs> so um, being the situation and how we grew up, obviously my parents, my stepfather particularly had this idea that we would be moving into the most remote location he could possibly find and that we'd live out the rest of our days there um, while the end of the world came to pass. And <laughs> so did you grow up like did you did you grow up mentally thinking that like the end of the world was coming? Um, I grew up immersed in that. Um, but I had a lot of independent thoughts as a young girl, I would say, and I always had this in the back of my mind. It's kind of like the same concept, I think, as a pastor's child, like you, sure. you yeah. believe, you know, mm -hmm. you've heard it all, but back here, you're kind of fighting against it a little bit until sure. you kind of come to your own. So um, while yes, there was always like a background fear of like, what if this is true? What mm -hmm. if this is truly happening? So you kind of just follow along and you do what you got to do, right? Yeah. So that's kind of where I was at that age. So then how old were you when your stepfather moved you guys out to the middle of nowhere? I had just turned 11. You had just turned 11. Mm -hmm. Yep. And and so was that like, um, I keep thinking in the, the, there's this TV show that was on like Alaska's Last Frontier that I used to yeah. love. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so yeah. is it like, it was it like something like that where you're like, literally, it's like a house in the middle of nowhere? Or were you guys like roughing it? Where we ended up was a literally an old, um, up there and around there, there's obviously a lot of trapping. So Legit trappers usually have some form of a trapper's cabin or a shack, literally a shack, um, some place where they can just warm themselves up and move on down the road. You know, okay. or trail. Mm -hmm. And so where we ended up was literally in a old trapper's shack um, that was, I'm trying to remember, could have been like a 10 by 15 you know, not very big rectangle of a, sh a building. So, and how many of you were in there? 
five. Oh my gosh. So it was my stepfather, my mother, my youngest brother, and my deaf brother and myself. Wow. And so So you're out there and you have no electricity or heat or anything like that? Nope. Well, we have a wood burning stove. Mm -hmm. It's a small barrel stove. Um, So we had heat. Yeah. um, But absolutely no electricity. We got our water from a creek, a nearby creek, things like that. So, and we had um, the old uh, oil burning lamps, you know, that you light the wick and turn it up or down and things like that. So, Mm -hmm. So when you moved to this, I mean, what was your reaction? Well, considering from the moment we left pavement to the time we got there, that it just completely was a disaster. I just knew that something bad was going to happen and we we either weren't going to make it or we needed to turn around. And of course we didn't turn around. So and we almost didn't make it, but we did. So, <laughs> so did you walk to get there? So we actually made it to the cabin, but so we went in with two vehicles. One had, they're both packed full of our things. Mm-hmm. One was toting a trailer that was full of our animals. And the other one had been packed with food items, staples, uh, things we had grown, big bags of um, whole wheat grain supposed to have been to feed the animals, um, fresh vegetables that my mom had planned on canning once we got in. Cause she didn't have time to do it while we were there, you know, before for prepping and a, a few other things. And, um, on the process of going in, it started to snow and storm and we got stuck. And so what happened is the first vehicle that had our animals, got stuck first. And that also had our food in the back of that truck. So my stepfather thought, well, we'll all just cram into this other vehicle and just keep going and try to get there before dark because it was only like 24 miles away. And that vehicle got us about three miles away from the cabin before it got stuck. And we ended up walking the rest of the way from there. Oh my gosh. So everything was now not with us, right. <laughs> especially food items and mm-hmm. things that could really be helpful. In his mind, the storm would pass and we would turn around the next day. He would go fix, you know, get the truck unstuck, fix whatever needed to fix. And we'd go get the animals and the food and we'd be fine. Right. So that didn't happen. It stormed and it stormed and it stormed. And, you know, in my mind, I was young. I, it, went on for a long time and we couldn't go back and get the things we needed. I think it was almost two weeks before it finally just stopped storming. So you're now in this like 10 by 15 shack for two weeks then, right? Yeah. With just a few of the basics because they had gone in previously and had a few, few basics that were there already kind of prepped. Um, but with nothing really. So we were just kind of waiting out the storm. Wow. Um, I don't exactly in my mind, I just remember him starting to talk about, okay, well, we got to, as soon as the storm lets up, as soon as we can, we got to head out and get the animals, if they're even still alive at this point, get our food, get things like that. And uh, he decided for some reason that 
myself and my deaf brother, who was older than me, but he had disabilities, obviously, and couldn't hear much less, you know, really take care of himself. And because we were young and able to go get the animals and some food, because it was only a 24 mile walk, and that should be able to happen in a couple days, right? So um, we set off one, it was quite a bit, quite a while later, it didn't happen real soon. But um, we headed off to do that. And what was supposed to be a couple days ended up being a couple weeks for us. Wow. And we obviously didn't go out prepared. We obviously didn't know what we we're up against. Um, I mean, who does in that kind of a situation, whether you're the most experienced survivalist in the world, the, there's things you just don't expect. Right. Especially when you're prepping for a few days and then you get out there and it's weeks long. And yeah. regardless, and like, well, that's, that's it. Like there's one adult really, you know, and yeah. two kids like that's, oh, oh my gosh. Okay. Keep yeah. going. So, there's, so it's just me and my brother. There's not, my stepdad did not go with us and my mom. Hold did the not phone. Go what? You're st- yeah. So it was just you and your brother. Yes. So um, from day one, we were up against walking through snow up to our waist. I mean, I don't know if you've been in snow a lot, but Walking through snow period is not very easy. It's like wading through water, basically, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah. Slow motion, just exhausting. Um, and we're pulling, obviously, sleds behind us, you know, with a rope around our waist to get going. Um, so day one, I think we made it a few miles, not very far at all, and made camp. I mean, other than just the snow and being exhausted, it was pretty productive, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) But after that, it just seemed like it got harder and harder. You know, um, we're obviously hungry and exhausted and wet because our things don't really dry out over next to a little fire at night. Right. Right. And uh, on day three, we woke up and we could barely open our eyes. I think it was day three. I don't know if you know what snow blindness is or if you know, like, have you ever heard of when somebody welds and you get flash burn? Like, have you? Yeah. It kind of burns your eyes. Yeah. Um, it's kind of the same concept where you just, you're basically burned the retinas and you can't really see it causes like crusting and yeah, pain. sure. pain's pretty excruciating. <sighs> Um, Because the sun had been glaring down on the snow and we didn't have anything to protect our eyes. We didn't know anything about it. Of course, yeah. um, Both my brother and I ended up with snow blindness. And in my mind, we were over halfway there. So whether we turned back or kept going, it would have been the same outcome. Like either we're going to die and then our family's going to die or we're going to go back and we're all going to starve to death. So what do we do? And um, so we just kept going and uh, it was a really hard couple of days. You're in that situation where it literally is life or death and you're 11 years old. I mean, 
I'm sure for you, it's one of those things where like, when you remember it, you remember it so vividly. And, and, but like, do you, to think that like that little body was doing it, you know, like this little girl was doing it. I, I have three kids of my own that are now actually older than that age. I have a 12 year old, a 14 year old and a 16 year old. And to look at them and think that they could do something like that, I can't imagine it. So it's hard to look back and be like, how did we do it? You know? And then, you know, it's like, but at the end of the day, knowing what I know now, it's like, you do what you do in the moment. I think, yeah, I think that's a universal thing that people yeah. have ingrained in them is a will to survive and you do what you have to do, you know? So I, that's the only thing that can explain it. Yeah. So it was awful. Um, now my brother is now literally blind and deaf and He's obviously in a world of hurt and miserable, freaking out. Life's very, probably more difficult for him than me by a long shot. Yeah. And so I'm leading him and I'm trying to see, you know, I'm literally tearing my eyes open to be able to see once in a while. I'm basically following this path, you know, a white road between trees based on memory, you know, and uh, we finally make it to the truck. And over a couple of days, kind of just, we just get into the truck of the cab and try to stay protected, try to heal, try to get things figured out, because we were worthless at that point, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, just a million things going on. So, um, I left my brother in the truck after I felt like I could move around a little bit. I was still basically forcing my eyes open to do anything because it was hurting so bad. And um, I decided to walk back to where we'd left the trailer with the animals to see if anything had survived, to see if I could salvage anything and um, left my brother there. And of course, when we got there, the animals were all passed away. Um, a wild animal had gotten its way into the trailer. I don't know at what point, but either before or after had killed some or taken some, you know, so there was just nothing left. And I went back to the truck to try to salvage what was in the truck. And of course, all the fresh goods were now also gone because they right. rot and they froze and all of that stuff. So there was really nothing left but a bit of canned goods, mainly like some pork that my mom had canned before we had left. That I remember the most vividly. And those bags of grain, the whole wheat, which were 50-pound bags. Oh, my gosh. Uh, so um, first thing we did, I remember, was breaking into one of the jars of pork so my brother and I could have something. But they were frozen and I remember chipping away at this glass jar and it breaking and we were still eating it because even with the glass in it, cause we wanted it so bad and we needed something. And it was, that's a memory that sticks with me to this day. Just the desperation of wanting something so bad or needing something so bad that you don't care. Yeah. And uh, after that, 
And after I felt my brother could move and get going on his own and force his eyes open and things like that, we loaded up two bags, so hundred, basically 100 pounds each into our sled with the things we already had, our sleeping bag that we had and the basics. We didn't obviously have very much and set out from there. And that was trying to pull that weight, trying to deal with the things we'd already been dealing with, <clears throat> dealing with the weather. It's just hard to explain it. It's impossible. That's like an, it's impossible. I, the, the fact that you guys even survived getting there, because we didn't even talk about like, yes, you didn't have extra clothes. So, I mean, you're constantly wet. You're just wet in snow. The hypothermia. What about wild animals? I mean, they're any, anything. Oh, yeah. Any oh, yeah. We experienced on the way there. Um, it was a couple nights in. I'd obviously, we take off our boots and we try to leave them by the fire while it's, a lot, you know, going. And we climb, because we had one sleeping bag we shared and we would put a tarp over and under, kind of like a, to protect the bottom of the sleeping bag and then to protect us on top, right? And we'd yeah. basically hide under trees and stay as covered as possible. But on the second or third night, a wolverine had taken my boot, one boot, and I had to go searching for it the next morning and thank God I found it. But it had, I was literally oh with a bat like wrapped around my foot, hopping around in the snow, trying to find this boot because if I didn't find it, what was I going to do? You right. Know? Yeah. <laughs> and thank God it had dropped it not that far away, you know, and it, it had just snowed a little bit on top and I could still see the color. So I was like, there it was. It was a miracle. <laughs> well, that's this whole thing. Your entire story is a miracle, you know, like. Yeah. Yeah. So other than that, animals in general, other than those types of creatures and a few like grouse or ptarmigan or Arctic type creatures are usually sleeping or hibernating during yeah. that time. So I wasn't yeah. worried about bears. I wasn't worried about things like that. To be honest, that never even really crossed my mind. Sure. You know, and things like wolverines, while they're very vicious creatures, they don't bother you if you don't bother them, you know, kind of deal. Yeah. So mm -hmm. we were just sleeping. <laughs> yeah. So how yeah. long was that whole, that whole time you were gone? How long was that? A little over two weeks. So then so, at any point during that time, did anybody come looking for you guys because you had been gone? No. So we actually, so we kept going. Um, I experienced an injury trying to find water and it was scratching up my leg, falling through ice pretty bad. But it was a lot, you know, a lot of different things happened. Just misery, basically, yeah. for over those next few days. And um, the biggest thing that ended up happening was the night or the day before we actually finally made it to our destination, my brother had a meltdown and he lost it. And he started throwing everything off his sled and trying to throw things off my sled and telling me to leave it and that we just needed to get home and you know, like I understood where he was coming from, but he was mm -hmm. panicking and he was freaking yeah. out. And uh, so basically he threw off everything that we needed to survive. And he wouldn't let me put it on my sled. And he just wanted to push through. And when I tried, he actually punched me in the face for it. 
And so now I'm pretty sure I had a broken nose at that point. And we just kept going because there was no other choice. We were now somewhere close to home, but we didn't really know. Sure. Uh, yeah. With nothing. And he's like, we're going to make it home. We're going to make it home. And we kept going and kept going. And the only thing we had left was a tarp, really, and this what we had on our backs. And um, we ended up not making it home that night like he thought we would. And ended up rolled up on the snow in the tarp with what we had on. Oh, my gosh. And um, at this point, we did have hypothermia. And that's the first time I'd ever experienced it. Um, it is probably, a, it is excruciatingly painful to experience it. I um, we ended up falling asleep. I remember, well, I don't remember falling asleep, but I remember shivering and my body was contracting so bad that you feel like your muscles are pulling in and everything's so tight and won't yeah. release. And it just, it's, it's super painful. And I remember feeling my brother doing this, you know, going through the same thing, shaking and just convulsing and just having yeah. a hard time. And we, like I said, I don't remember falling asleep, but I remember all of a sudden having this warm feeling and I thought the sun was coming up. I literally saw brightness. I saw the sun coming up and then I had this thought that it's time to get up, Sapphire. You need to get up. I'm like, oh yeah, the sun's coming up, of course, you know? And that's when I opened my eyes and it's still pitch black. And at that point, I could feel my brother was no longer shaking and moving. Obviously, I couldn't feel any warmth. We never felt warmth. Uh, so... I began to try to move. It was like I could barely move. It was very difficult. And I felt him and like I couldn't feel breathing. And I was started shaking him. I put my hand on his face and like he was kind of breathing, but not. And he wasn't responding and I was shaking him. And it took me a very long time. And I don't exactly remember how long, but I was somehow able to kind of revive him. And by that point, it was kind of a dawn and it started getting light. And uh, I was able to get him up. Thank God. Yeah. And um, he was sluggish and very unresponsive. And just, I just kind of acted like, hey, we just need to get up. We got to keep moving. I didn't like acknowledge that, hey, you were nearly dead. And right, oh, right. Like, almost didn't make it like, Hey, we need to get moving and we need to get home now. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So that's kind of just how I treated it and got us moving. And thank God that we did make it home that day. And I remember we seen the truck, that last truck that was, and I knew that I was like, we're only a few miles away from home. And right. Right. I started screaming and yelling, hoping that my voice would echo and, you know somebody would hear us and help yeah. us you know and I, uh, my deaf brother he couldn't verbalize things in coherent words but he could make noise and mm -hmm. I think once he realized what I was doing he started doing you know screaming and yelling too and sure 
I think we were like a mile or so away. And then I did see my mom coming and it was just like the most, it's an indescribable feeling like to know that there's another human, another person, somebody's going to take care of me. Somebody's going to save me. Right. So, So we made it home and we survived it, but it was, we almost didn't. Do you still talk to your mom and stepdad or are you? I do talk to my mom. Um, my stepdad has passed away. Um, so, But before he did, we didn't. And my mom and I did not really have a relationship much. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when you got back, what was your mom? Was your mom elated to see you guys? Oh, it had yes. been weeks. Oh, yeah. My mom obviously was very happy to see us and. She was crying and, you know, it was awful for all of us. But I did, you know, after being back for a little while, you know, basically question why nobody had come out to find us. Don't you think two weeks that something would have happened to us, you know? Right. You know, and they never really had an answer. My mom said she had tried, but she couldn't get through the snow on her own and, you know, had to turn back and, you know, just, but that was really the extent of it. And I didn't really push it much more because I didn't really want to hear it. Sure. Yeah. So how, so once you get back and you get back without the supplies, what was the reaction then there? Or what did you guys do then to survive? So um, the supplies, thankfully, weren't that far away that we had left behind because it had been pretty close to home in reality. And we had already kind of blazed a trail. So it was kind of easy just for my stepdad and me just to quickly run back and grab those things because we had made that happen. Yeah. So we had that. Wait a minute. So you went back out again with your, but this time with your stepdad? Yeah. So I actually ended up doing four trips that winter myself. And obviously none like the first because we now knew what we were up against. And we now had, you know, kind of a trail going through the snow and things changed, you know. So it alternated between my stepfather and my brother, but I did every trip. And uh, so, yeah, we went back multiple times to get more grain. And that's pretty much all we ate that winter was just different versions of how you could process whole wheat grains. So once you get through the winter, do you guys stay there? And if so, like, how long did you stay there? So as soon as we were able, we did get out of there. Um, We obviously were in bad shape. There was no sustainable option for at the moment. I mean, there's no realistic way for us to, like, we needed a restart. If we were going to do this again, we needed a restart in his mind. Thank God. Um, but, um, yeah, as soon as the snow let up and it melted enough, we got out of there and, um, I did end up moving out shortly after we got, I had, I had talked to my mom. I had asked her, you know, if she was going to leave him and if she didn't, that I could not stay any longer because I didn't want to keep going through these situations. So she had her warning you know, in a sense, and then yeah. some other things had happened. But um, 
that's a story for another day, but <laughs> I ended up moving out shortly after I got away. We got out of there. I, I basically snuck out and left. So where did you end up? Go- where did you end up going then? Was it like another family member or? So it was a, a friend of a family members um, that I ended up staying with in a small town close to where we were at the uh-huh. time kind of like in a sense to throw them off the trail in a way because sure. I, I wanted to think I had left for Oregon, but I, I was really just down the road. Yeah. <laughs> kind <of doing> yeah. <laughs> to give myself time to process. And how are you uh, what? 12 at this point? I was right before I turned 12. Girlfriend, the level of strength that you have and the level of maturity at 12 years old is literally unfathomable. It's hard to look back and think or understand understand myself. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Age. Yeah. Now, even now, I don't even feel like that mature or that strong, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, so immature, really. <laughs> <laughs> but you had, you, I mean, you did what you had to do to survive. Yeah. So did they come looking at you once you left when you were 12? Yes. So yeah. um, it was didn't take very long before they figured out that I was and that was fine. I, I had prepared myself. I just needed a few days to get ready for the mm-hmm. outcome, right? Yeah. So my mom did show up at the doorstep. And that honestly was probably almost as difficult, that experience as nearly dying. Yeah. Was having her kind of, it sticks out in my mind and affects me to this day, what she said. She said, she walked up, opened the door, and she said, get in the truck. And I said, no. And, you know, I expected her to argue with me, fight with me, grab me, force me into the truck, you know, whatever. But all she did was shrug her shoulders and walk away. But, you know, as a child, you want your mom to want you, right? Yeah. And fight for you. Yeah. 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 But at the same time, it was also liberating because I knew I wouldn't have to fight my way out of it anymore. Wow. So pretty much kind of life went on after that. I didn't talk to my mom for over a year and I did end up going to Oregon. Um, You know, I stayed with these friends, these wonderful people that let me have a little safe haven to kind of gain my feet and figure out what I needed to do and you know, let me function for a minute. And then I uh, ended up going on and moving down to Oregon and ended up living with, I wanted to go to school. I'd never been to public school at all. I'd only been taught to read and write basically and some basic math. So I was like, I want to go to school. That was really difficult too. (laughs) So. Um, so I ended up, I had a sister that lived down there and her father, uh, who said that I could, as long as I was going to go to school, that I could live at his house. So basically I was, while he was obviously very kind and very helpful, kind of like a roommate situation, like do your job and you can hang out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's what I did for the remaining high school years at that point. But 
yeah, over the years, I did, you know, talk to my mom here and there, but it was very just disconnected and just like, how are you? How's the weather? You know, everybody's fine, <laughs> you know, kind of deal. And it wasn't until after my stepfather died that I felt like I kind of got my mom back. Sure. Mm-hmm. You know, um, yeah. we probably have, I mean, we have a good relationship. You know, we don't talk a lot still, but um, at least we talk and at least, yeah. <laughs> at least there's something there, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. But I definitely, out of all the situations in my life over the last few years, I've realized that I think that one has been the most defining on how I react to things, handle things, do things, and just function in general. So I decided to kind of decide to write the story. I decided to really dive into it and kind of figure out what is going on with me and change things I don't like and learn to function with the things that are just not changeable maybe and, you know, go from there. I cannot describe to you what a freaking inspiration you are. I mean, the fact that you survived two weeks in the wild, in the Yukon, in the middle of winter is a miracle. I mean, you are a living, breathing miracle. You surviving and you going on and going through all of this was exactly you're meant to be here. You know, you, you're meant to be here. You're meant to do the things you're doing. This is, nobody should have to do this, let alone a 11 year old little girl who then not only, not only do you survive that, but then you go on and you like kick the world's ass by going to school and just being you and doing what you need to do to survive. And honey, you are literally resilience, like strength. Oh my God. Like, what a story. What a story. It's definitely been a process to learn how to share it. Like yeah. even my friends from high school recently, you know, they, I, they realize I'm coming out with a story and they're like, what the heck, Sapphire? Why'd you never tell us? We didn't know, you know? Yeah. And it was like a dream that just kind of, you just throw away and, mm-hmm until it starts reoccurring in your life and you're like, what in the world's going on? <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so, and like, that's a, I, like trauma, you know, like there's all sorts of different levels of trauma, but like often, like when you're a kid, the trauma you experience, like you feel like ashamed of almost like it's a, like the whole experience is shameful. Mm-hmm. Like somehow that you were a part of it. It was somehow your fault when obviously that is not the case, but yeah. So you don't tell people about it. You don't tell your friends about it. You're literally embarrassed about it. And I grew up everything being such a secretive thing Mm -hmm. because of the the way we lived. You know, it's like you can't tell anybody where you're at. You can't tell anybody what we're doing. You can't tell it, you know, because you don't want the whole world to know. Right. Right. So, yeah, I think that had a huge impact on not just what happened, but like feeling like if I tell, I'm going to be in trouble, you know, yeah. even yeah. though I'm not with them, they're going to find me or something's right. going to happen. Right. Right. What advice would you give to someone else who has, who has survived an unimaginable challenge in their life or right now is in that challenge? Is there anything that you would say to them to help them? Like I mentioned earlier, it, 
we as human beings have this natural ability to survive anything. But in that moment, we don't know it. And I think whether you went through something or are going through something now, that you will make it through it. It's just how you're going to handle it when you get to the other side is really what it boils down to. What have you learned about yourself going through this entire process? Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I have going through this process, I have learned why I do certain things I do and that I do have what they, what do they call them? The, the things I'm doing are the traumatic, like the responses to that trauma that I just, I don't realize it. Mm -hmm. Like somebody mentioned the other day and and literally named it. I was like blown away. It's um, ultimate independence, I think is what she called it. Uh Where like, I don't have the ability to, or don't want the, to have the ability to really rely on anybody or trust anybody or get emotionally attached or involved somehow because I know I can take care of it myself. That's been a huge thing all my life and it's been a problem. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) You know, it really does become a problem Mm -hmm. among many other things. So I'm starting to learn the vulnerabilities and the issues I need to deal with as well as my strengths. And like I just mentioned the other day, I feel like I'm finding my calling. Like this journey is leading me to what I need to do. I still don't have a name for it. I still don't know exactly what it is, but I can feel it and I'm going in the right direction. Yes. That's been the biggest, I think, defining factor of this journey. Okay. So what has been the hardest part about your journey? I think the hardest part for me is going back and processing the family dynamics, the emotions, the abandonment feelings, the, honestly, that I think has been the hardest part is just coming to terms with the fact that, okay, my family wasn't perfect. My family made a lot of mistakes, Mm -hmm. you know, while I have those feelings, they do not have to define me, you know, that I don't have to let them continue to control me, like the feelings, Yeah. because I obviously broke that control years ago in regards to my family's not going to put me through this. Yeah. But all those things are connected. And that's been the hardest part is just like not being angry with my family, not feeling like I just don't want to be a part of it because they're still family and I love them very much, you know, but just to get through it, not being bitter, yeah, you know, yeah, being bitter is a difficult one. Sometimes when you get, you have this thought go through, you're like, Oh, you know, Oh, and yeah. it's just got to shake yeah. it off, you know, and just, cause what's that quote, you know, like when you're angry with somebody it's just taking up rent in your head or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want that, you know, and I don't want that for anybody else either. What do you hope the takeaway is of your story for our listeners? I really just want, because I mean, I've 
been following you guys for a while and you guys have had some incredible speakers and listeners on here. And I know that they know what I'm talking about. Just coming out on the other side and wanting to be the best version of yourself because we don't have to let those pains and those things that happen to us. We want the best of us to come out in this world and make it a better place. You're incredible. You literally are incredible. Oh, (laughs) I've like just got like these crazy vibes. Like I can't even, um, Sapphire. I don't know that there is anybody that has a story quite like yours, but as I said before, I mean, you are literally a walking miracle and there is a purpose for you to be here. And it's so amazing that you're on the journey of finding that. So thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. But before you go, we just have some spook, super fun, lighthearted pop questions to wrap it all up. <laughs> You're like, I can do this. <laughs> uh, um, okay. So if you could have an endless supply of anything, what would it be? Oh, endless supply of anything. Good books. Oh, that's a great one. That is a great one. If you were a superhero, what would your power be? Oh, I just talked to my kids about this the other day. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. Um, That's a really hard one. But I think I would be just like superwoman. Like, I think just that all encompass, just I can handle anything. Well, you already are super. <laughs> I was just about to say the same thing. Exactly. Um, what is your most used emoji? Oh, well, lately it, it transitioned from like the little heart eye smiley face thing to the green heart because oh. it represents nature. It represents just being a human being, earth and mental well-being. So the green heart. I love that. I love it. What's your stance on pineapple on pizza? Uh, It's a (laughs) (laughs) love-hate. Sometimes I crave it and I love it. Sometimes it's like, "Uh uh-uh, no thanks. Uh, Oh, wow. Uh, Yes. And then the last question, are you a morning person or a night owl? I am definitely a morning person. I could get up at two or three in the morning, function all day just fine, but anything past seven, I'm like, huh? Time for- I hear that. <laughs> exactly it. Yeah. Exactly it. Oh, Sapphire, you are absolutely incredible. So inspiring. And like Kim already said, like you are absolutely put here to do amazing things and you're doing it. You are absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for being unapologetically you. Thank you both. We're so happy you joined us and we hope this story inspired you to be unapologetically you. Join us next time for another remarkable journey. And if you or someone you know has a story to share, please reach out to us on our website at unapologeticallyyoupodcast.com. Don't forget to like us on Instagram and Facebook at unapologeticallyyoupodcast. And please rate and subscribe on whatever platform you listen in on so that we can continue to inspire you.